Well, good morning, everyone. Today's Numbers Day, and welcome to this Workers by the Numbers blogcast on the Power at Work blog. My name is Seth Harris. I am a senior fellow at the Burns Center for Social Change at Northeastern University. Delighted to have all of you here with us to talk about the latest jobs, wages, and unemployment report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, as is our way, we have brought together three really outstanding labor economists who have a lot of experience digging through these numbers and helping to translate them, tell us what they mean to uh, workers. So let me introduce them to you now. First, uh, Professor of Economics and Director of the Schwartz Center for Economic Policy Analysis at the New School, Teresa Gillarducci. Good morning, Teresa. Hi. Uh, second is my former Labor Department colleague, longtime friend, and now the Chief Economist at the AFL-CIO, and a professor of economics at Howard University, Bill Spriggs. Morning, thanks for having me. And last but not least, a senior economist at the Economic Policy Institute and purveyor of outstanding charts on Twitter. In fact, we're taking her from her chart making for Twitter. Maybe not, maybe she's doing it while we're talking. <laughs> Elise Gould, good morning, Elise. Good morning. So let's get right to it. Uh, here are the headline numbers from BLS's February employment situation report. The unemployment rate rose to 3.6% in February. Last month, it was 3.4%, which is the lowest it had been since May 1969. The economy created 311,000 jobs in February. That is a decrease from a whopping 517,000 jobs in January, the average increase in 2022 was 401,000 jobs per month, but there had been a decline in the latter half of the year. So this is roughly consistent with that, the pace in the latter half of 2022. Average hourly earnings increased by eight cents from January to February. That's slower than the 10 cent or 0.3% increase that we saw from December to January year over year. Nominal wages, meaning actual wages as opposed to inflation-adjusted wages, increased 4.6%. Now, the consumer price index was about 0.5% in, in January, and another inflation indicator that, that a lot of economists look to is called the personal consumption expenditure price index was 0.6%. So uh, nominal wages, wage increases are lagging slightly behind or did lag behind inflation uh, in February. So those are the headline numbers. So let's dive right in with our analysis. And Teresa, let me start with you. Uh, are these numbers good for workers? Are they bad for workers? Or would you say they're a mixed bag? Um, they're so, so too bad. The trend is down. Workers did not gain any purchasing power with their wages. You know, um, real wages are down. The unemployment rate is um, inching up. Um, but the numbers of jobs created was was pretty good, 300,000. I feel like I'm talking right to the Federal Reserve uh, um, um, chiefs right now, um, Seth, that this is not a hot labor market. It's nothing like last um, like last year. And since unemployment is a lagging indicator, it seems as though it indicates that we're already in a slower down economy, uh, uh, slow down the economy and higher interest rates just aren't warranted. So, Bill, when you brief uh, Liz Schuler and the other leadership of the AFL-CIO and they ask you, is this good for workers, bad for workers, or a mixed bag, what are you going to tell them? 
Uh, it's good and it's bad. It's good in the sense that jobs are being gained. It's good in the sense that labor force participation continues to recover, particularly for Black and Hispanic workers. Uh, it's bad because I think the economists of the Fed are stupid. And <laughs> they're going to look at 300,000 and they go, oh my goodness, the earth is falling, the earth is falling. Uh, and they think we've gone over the cliff and the dragon is going to eat us. Um, I mean, what, what the numbers show, the Fed, the Fed promised, it promised, it would now look at the total labor market, in particular, it would pay attention to Black and Hispanic workers. And the labor force participation of Black and Hispanic workers has continued to grow. The labor force participation for less educated workers last month, those who um, didn't finish high school, these are separate comments. People should not conflate uh, Black and Hispanic workers with dropouts. That's a big mistake. Don't do it. But the labor force participation for high school dropouts went up. Labor force participation for Blacks went up. Labor force participation for Hispanic workers went up. They are continuing to return to the labor market. The Fed keeps insisting there are no more workers. I mean, what, what the numbers are showing is firms are expanding, they're adding workers, and the workers are there. Uh, and in fact, you know, we have the anomaly that the unemployment rate for Black women went up, the unemployment rate for Hispanics went up, but that's because so many people returned to the labor market that they, even though they gained jobs and employment population ratios went up, many of them still remained unemployed. So uh, there clearly is a supply of workers available for firms. Workers are returning to the labor market. And so I think that's good for workers that, that we're continuing to have recovery in employment to population ratio. It sounds like your view is that it's, it's good for workers, except that some policymakers think that when things are good for workers, that's bad for the economy. Um, that's actually the premise of this broadcast. That's the reason that we do these broadcasts is we want to talk about what it means for workers because so much of the conversation is around predicting what Wall Street will do or what the Federal Reserve will do. Uh, let me just say, I think your opening statement, which is, uh, I'm not going to repeat it because I don't want to get into trouble, maybe the headline for this broadcast, yeah. but uh, we'll have to play it back. Elise, is the report good for workers, bad for workers, or is it a mixed bag for workers? Well, I think I have to agree with my colleagues when we think about what is happening in the economy today. Um, you heard them talk about how there's more workers coming back. There is room for growth. It is not too hot, but I would say that overall, it's been a pretty strong report, but we don't want to overstate that and say that there's some sort of overheating economy. That's not what's happening when you're looking at wage growth. You see the unemployment rate go up, um, mostly because workers are coming back in. They are hoping to find opportunities. And I really am afraid that if the Federal Reserve moves too fast, they continue to move too fast, then they are going to choke off this um, these gains that have been made and uh, won't allow the full employment economy to really develop and to see those gains across the board for workers. Yeah, so I, I I think I'm inclined to agree with all three of you. Although I'm 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 going to be more optimistic, and I'm not going to worry about what the Federal Reserve is going to do. I think that they preset their policy making, and these particular numbers are not going to make that much of a difference. But just taking the numbers at face value, 
more jobs, many more jobs for workers without, as Elise was saying, running very hot. Last month, 517,000 jobs. That was not a sustainable pace at this point in the economic recovery. 311,000 jobs, that's a good, solid pace. Wages are up. They are not up fast enough to keep with inflation. So I think that's a negative story for workers. But as all of you have said, there are workers who were out of the labor market who are coming back into the labor market, particularly Black and Latino workers who are almost always left behind in these recoveries. They're getting back into the labor market. That's why the unemployment rate went up, right? Because labor force participation went up. But the, the, my concern is that there are still large numbers of workers who are out of the labor market who have not been lured back in. There's uh, 5.1 million. Well, I'll save this actually for when we do the stat of the day, because I, I want to focus yeah. on particular things. But I, on the whole, I think it's a good report. But I think it's fair to say it's a little bit mixed because that wages number is, is yeah, a little right. bit concerning. And we're also seeing some softness in some particular industries. The information industry saw a loss of jobs, transportation and warehousing saw a loss of jobs. But man, there's a lot of growth all across the economy, including in leisure and hospitality, which is still way behind its pre-pandemic numbers. So, so I'm feeling pretty good about this report. I'd still like to see those wages numbers a little faster, but I wanna recognize your point that if wages rose faster, um, who knows how many people would be running around screaming hysterically in a particular building in Washington, D.C., maybe multiple buildings in Washington, D.C. I don't know. OK, so let me get on to our next question. One of the great things about having really knowledgeable and experienced analysts like our three guests today on to talk about this report is they go behind those headline numbers and they find particular statistics that tell a story either about a portion of the labor market, a portion of the worker population, or about the population as a whole, something that we don't focus on when we just look at those headline numbers. So I wanna, I wanna get into the stat of the day. I'm gonna give every one of our uh, guests an opportunity to tell us what is your stat, and you can, you can take two. You could have two stats of the day, or three even, if it's that important to you. So Bill, what is your stat of the day? You're on mute, sir. One thanks. One one of the one of my stats of the day is I always look at the uh, the experimental survey. Uh, the BLS has a survey. They they look at the household survey. They align the definition of a payroll job to the payroll survey. And last month it showed the households agreed with the payroll numbers, big increase. Uh, this time the household survey wasn't consistent with that. So that, that was a little disconcerting. Um, labor force flow is always important to me and there continued to be this optimistic look from the labor force flow uh, the flow of people from unemployment to out of the labor force that was down. It continues to trend down. Um, and, and that's a good sign that people aren't being discouraged. And the number of people who are long-term unemployed, uh, unemployed more than 27 weeks, that came down. So uh, th those two numbers on the flow side are, are we 
solving the long-term unemployed in a good way, I would say it looks like we are because it, it isn't that people are going from unemployment to I quit, forget it. And we continue to see big numbers for people who are not in the labor force and the next month suddenly they have a job, which, which is always a good indicator. That's a good one. Elise, what's your stat or stats of the day? Okay, I'm going to take liberties. I'm going to give you three of them. Sorry, I said two before, and we're supposed That's, to one. Can I just say three? Three is going to be extra. Um, it's going to be. It's going to cost you extra. Okay, I will. I will pay the fine because I think it's important. <laughs> um, the first one is prime age epops. We are now back to wait, where wait, we were. Define that for everybody. Prime I'm going to define prime age epops. That is exactly right. what I should be doing. Right. <laughs> prime age epops is the share of the population ages 25 to 54 with a job. So you look at everyone, 25 to 54, uh, the share of them with a job is the employment to population ratio. So uh, it's one of my favorite statistics. It tells you how workers are doing. It's not a level, it's a rate. So you can be looking at um, cross time. And we can see now that we have pretty much come back to pre-COVID, pre-pandemic levels. And that is a very good indicator uh, for the economy um, and for people in the economy being able to get jobs. My first indicator. The second one is what is happening with nominal wage growth. Nominal wage growth is clearly decelerating. You look at the three-month average, you look at uh, the month-over-month -month annualized, you look at any of these different measures, you can see this deceleration. That deceleration is good news for what the Federal Reserve might be looking at. Obviously, not necessarily good news for people, but it is normalizing. Um, what we hope is that inflation will come down, and this will actually be beating inflation when we see those numbers next week. And then uh, people's purchasing power can be, can be increasing. But it's clear that wage growth is not adding to inflationary pressures. I think that's the key measure, the key takeaway from that decelerating wage growth. That has not been what has been feeding inflation, and it is clearly not what's feeding inflation now. The third measure, I would say, is a disappointing one. Uh, state and local jobs are still down. We did see some increase in February, but they are still down significantly uh, from pre-pandemic levels. That's worrying uh, for the people in those jobs and obviously for the services that they provide. Those are good ones. Let me, I, I want to uh, highlight your point about the relationship between wages and inflation. Wages have largely, but not entirely, been trailing inflation pretty much since we saw the big spike up in inflation, I, I guess it was about 18 months ago or so. Um, is one of the arguments that we hear uh, from people who are focused on Wall Street and focused on uh, inflationary pressures and interest rates is that the critical policy move that has to happen is to dramatically slow wage growth because the result of that will be to bring inflation down. I, I want you to just say two more sentences about that idea that we cannot slow inflation without further slowing nominal wage growth. I know you don't agree with that. Tell us a little bit why you think that's wrong. Well, I think the concern here is that if we're going to slow in inflation down, the Federal Reserve is using the tools to slow the entire labor market down, give people, um, you actually increase the unemployment rate, lower demand for goods and services, and that will then give them less bargaining power. They'll be um, less scarce in the labor market. Employers won't have to pay them as much. There's this ripple effect that will happen. Um, but what we're seeing really is that since, as you've pointed out correctly, that 
uh, wage growth has been lagging, um, is actually slower than inflation. It is not what's driving inflation. We know that there have been many other factors outside of the labor market that's driving inflation. Um, this is very uh, a blunt tool to get at um, what is happening in inflation. Yeah, I, 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 very important. I think we can't say that often enough. It's that it, workers are not the cause of inflation. Workers' wages are not the cause of inflation. The 1970s are gone. This is a different era. Workers have so little power in this economy that they're not really driving what's going on inflation. There's a lot of other factors involved here. Teresa, what's your stat or stats of the day? Sure. I have two, but I want to um, put an exclamation point on that sentence. There is no evidence of wage push or cost push inflation here. And if the Federal Reserve wants to lower wages by engineering a recession, we're in danger of stagflation, meaning more jobless and still higher prices if the heart of the problem of inflation is not dealt with. And that is not workers, Ukraine, Ukrainian war and still supply chain problems. That's still the, the story. I look at a very visceral um, number and that is how it's an indicator of how workers are feeling about their own power and that is the job lever rate in this report and the quits rate in the report that came out just a couple of days ago and both those numbers show the quit rate the job lever rate that's when a worker says take this job and shove it i'm going someplace else those rates have gone down which um, see, which shows to me that workers are a little afraid that if they quit, they won't find a job. Um, they won't find a job as good as the one that they have. And it's particularly interesting that the quit rate has fallen the fastest in those business and professional services. And to your point, Elise, not in state and local government, but in the federal government. So it looks like workers are kind of hunkering down and aren't as feisty in leaving or uh, bargaining for a higher uh, higher wage. So that is, shows to me that worker power is, is, is falling. The other number that I look at is not um, is beyond what Elise looks at. I'm looking at what happens to workers over 55. Now, why am I interested in that? Because I'm interested in the labor power, the worker power for all workers. Since workers over 55 will is predicted to take up half of the 10 million or so jobs predicted to be created in the next 10 years. So half of them will be filled with older workers. What happens to them really says a lot about the worker power for all workers. And since workers don't have the pension security they had in the 70s or 80s, and it looks like the uh, stock market is taking, uh, a, is uh, causing 401k plans, whatever, uh, people have to fall, that we have more and more older workers looking for work um, to supplement their, their really weak and inadequate pensions. And if that continues, if we do nothing to help pensions and Social Security, you're going to see more and more older workers enter the labor market in whatever uh, under whatever terms they want. And that bodes poorly uh, for worker power. And what it happened to work older workers in this report shows the unemployment rate is up um, and their employment is up as well. We, a million of older workers lost their jobs involuntarily and told surveyors that they were retired when 
they really are just long-term unemployed. And those people have not come back to the labor force. So for the older worker population, sorry, I'm going on so long, the labor market looks like it's really softening and getting worse. Yeah, I, so such an important point that part of what happened during the pandemic with older workers was a pattern that had long existed, which is folks would leave the labor market at it once they got above the age of 55 or maybe even a little older. They'd leave the labor market, come back in, leave the labor market, come back in, partly to supplement their income, partly because they were sort of trying out retirement. They were trying to test what their retirement uh, uh, savings would support. And so they found they needed a little bit of additional money. And what changed, it seems to me, is the workers were not older workers were not coming back into the labor market partly right. because they couldn't find jobs partly because they were worried about the pandemic but also for for other well, reasons and and that's a part of the labor force participation story that I think has been undertold um, right. over the last uh, over the last couple of years um, you you kicked us off on a topic that I want to go to next uh, Teresa which is to talk about worker power and what this report. Yeah tells us about uh, worker power. Let me let me give my, I'll tell you what, let me give you my stat of the day. Um, I always keep an eye on those folks who are out of the labor market, but easily could be yeah. in the labor market or in the labor market and are underworking, meaning that they're part-time, involuntarily, they'd like to be working full-time jobs. If the labor market were very, very tight, those numbers would be quite small, but they have been steady. They are lower than they had been before the pandemic. And they're about at late 1990s levels, which is the last time we had very tight labor markets. But there are 4.1 million part-time and voluntary workers, 5.1 million workers out of the labor market who want a job. Those are the people Bill and, and, and our other guests have been talking about who are coming back in, increasing the labor force participation rate, but only a little bit, only a 10th of a percent this month. We need to get those workers into the labor market and the part-time workers working full-time. That's when we will have genuinely tight labor markets. But I'm still, I'm looking at those numbers and they're not really budging. So this argument, and this is a, a point that several, that several of you have made, you can't make the argument we don't have workers. We do have workers. There's plenty of workers. And if we're going to address the problem that Elise was talking about, which is that there's a lot of demand from employers, but there's not enough supply of workers. There they are. There those workers are. Now there, there might be skills mismatched. There might be, you know, you live in New York, but the jobs in Los Angeles or the jobs in Omaha. Yeah. I get that, but that can't be true for everybody. And let me say, a lot of those problems are fixed with higher wages, reimbursement uh, support, other kinds of changes. So that's the number that I like to keep an eye on. And we saw no change, really effectively, no change. Actually, the not in the labor force who want a job went down about 200,000, but that is reflected in the increase in labor force participation, which is a very, very good yeah. thing. That's a good thing for workers. Okay, let's talk about worker power. Teresa opened it up, and I'm gonna start with you, Elise. What does this report tell us about worker power in our economy right now? What new information did we get out of this report, if anything, about where worker power stands right now? Yeah, I think Teresa really did kick it off here, talking about whether or not um, there's more churn. Are workers looking for other opportunities? Are they feeling economically insecure? I think that wage growth is coming down is a, is a bit of a sign that, um, uh, that they don't have as much power to bid up their wages. I think that there were some frictions that uh, were loosened up 
early on in the pandemic, when many low-wage workers lost their jobs, they came back in, they had a little bit more bargaining power, they were able to bid up their wages, uh, they were not tied as much to those jobs. My colleague Josh Bivens talks about this severed monopsony that happened. Um, now those employment contracts are firming up more and workers may be a little bit, feeling a little bit less uh, secure in terms of leaving those jobs, looking for other jobs. So you do see that earlier this, this week, we saw the quits rate did come down. So I do think that some of that uh, workers are gonna be holding on to those jobs, maybe are concerned about what could be happening with the Federal Reserve raising rates so, so fast. So I think that um, that's something to look out for. That said, I think that workers coming back in is a good sign. Um, I think that as uh, they continue to come back in and get jobs, that it will also um, be a bolster for them and they become more scarce, then their bargaining power will then go up again. Good. Bill, what do you think? Worker power, what happened in this report, if anything, that changed your assessment of where workers stand right now? I think it continues to confirm my hypothesis. This is all about the minimum wage. I mean, what, what, when you when you break down where did wage growth occur, it's it's only in the bottom. It's only for young workers. These are the workers who are affected by the minimum wage, and and increasingly, the states that were going to fifteen dollars an hour or twelve dollars an hour, they their increases now are smaller because the initial steps are huge. When you go from seven twenty five to fifteen. The first couple of steps are 10%, 12%, 15% wage increases. And those wage increases only show up in the lowest wage industry, leisure and hospitality and retail. They don't show up in any of the other industries. You don't see workers who are in their 30s and 40s getting big wage increases. It was a minimum wage story. The minimum wage levels are getting to where the states wanted them to be. And so there, this is this is a big part of the deceleration. And when you have an an a a, a, a a an economy that's expanding, so people are seeing hiring. If the minimum wage is going up, then quits are going to be high because a lot of firms are going to be struggling with: Do I maintain my wage structure within the firm? Right, because all of a sudden. I have to give everybody $12 an hour. Everybody's getting a raise. The people who are above the existing minimum wage or who are above other workers want to know, do I get the same boost? And some firms aren't going to be able to match that. Uh, but it's guaranteed if I switch jobs, I'm going to get paid more money than the job I'm in now. So there's every incentive uh, when those are binding changes in the minimum wage for people who want to switch because some firms are going to be um, less likely to maintain wage structure. Uh, we have not seen any of this at the bargaining table. We've not seen any firms lying down on their back saying, oh, woe is me. We have such a tight labor market, we can't find anybody. And you know, we keep seeing these rail accidents with Norfolk Southern. We should all be reminded that the rail industry did not come to these highly skilled workers and go, oh, the labor market's really tight. What do you want? You want eight weeks of paid leave? You want 12% a year wage increases? We'll give it to you. We'll give it to you. We did not see that. So I, I think it's uh, the, the workers who actually are bargaining have never seen what the Fed has seen uh, in terms of this increased ability. Um, 
And for for lower lower wage workers, I think the the market is maturing. People are in place, and without these very substantial and very binding minimum wage changes, the the, the wage is coming back. A strong reminder that a low unemployment rate in and of itself just does not generate wage pressure. We had an unemployment rate that was low pre-pandemic. And all of us were concerned because wages just weren't moving. I mean, we saw this throughout the recovery that wages just weren't moving as, as we lowered the unemployment rate. So the unemployment rate is just not a gauge of, of, of worker power. Good. Teresa. It's yeah. your, you don't have to. You don't have to raise your hand. It's your turn. It's tell, right. us about, tell us about okay. worker power. Tell us about worker um, power, and then we're so, going to wrap uh, up after this. Yeah. So Bill, I mean, Bill had a really good point. It's not supply and demand um, where worker get workers get their power. We have high demand for workers, as indicated by the unemployment rate, but still wages aren't going up. That you need something institutional, something else. And Bill said. Look, it's the minimum wage. It's the government bargaining for these low wage workers that have given any life, you know, to uh, wages. You know, it's at the very bottom of the um, of the labor market that's affected by legislatures raising the minimum wage. Um, I'm hoping that the union threat effect, the threat that unions will come in to unionize in Starbucks and warehouses, will actually inch up the wages. But if you want to look at what's happening to worker power. One of the saddest stories was just a few days ago when um, mine workers in Alabama um, came off of their two year strike with nothing, with absolutely nothing, a very strong union. In, in the 70s, they got real wage increases. And after two years of striking, not getting paid, they went back to work. They have their jobs, but they'll never make up for what they lost. So, um, that's another indicator that worker power is just not there and supply and demand isn't even on their side. One point I want to make, um, Seth, that you could add to your um, um, to your list of workers, the pool of workers that may be available for, um, for employers, not only the part-time workers that could be full-time or the people that were discouraged um, who still haven't gotten back. It's the pool of retirees the million people who said they were retired during the pandemic really aren't retired. There's just another word for long-term unemployment or discouraged workers. So if you add a million to what your four point something million, that's another reserve army of workers that indicate that the labor market's a little softer than the official unemployment rate. Great, an excellent and very important point. So I had one more question, but I want to end on a point of uh, personal privilege, and I and I'm confident that um, our guests uh, would would join me in this point. We lost a, a a titan of labor economics last month with the passing of uh, Rebecca Blank, Becky Blank, uh, who we all knew very well. Uh, I got to know Becky working with her in government uh, when she served both at the Council of Economic Advisors and also in the Commerce Department. She was a distinguished professor of economics at Northwestern before she joined the government and uh, was the president of the university, the chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Madison and played a vital role in holding off a right-wing assault 
on that institution and on public education uh, and public higher education more generally in in Wisconsin. Uh, both they, they the right wing both wanted to defund public higher education institutions and take control of them, eliminate things like tenure and Becky because of her remarkable diplomatic and political and intellectual skills was able to hold them off. But maybe her greatest accomplishment was captured in the obituary that ran in the New York Times about her, where she, she with a little known, little appreciated statistical improvement in the way poverty is measured in the United States helped millions and millions of millions of poor Americans not merely to be seen, but to benefit from programs that were designed to help them and to help government to understand the tremendous value of anti-poverty programs, cash assistance programs, housing assistance programs, and others. But I'll remember her as a, a friend, a, a positive force, a light. I'll, I'll remember sitting in her chancellor's office with my, my oldest son and my wife as my son was thinking about colleges. And here was the chancellor of the University of Wisconsin counseling my son about what he should be thinking about, not why he should come to Wisconsin. She wasn't yeah. selling Wisconsin. She didn't have to do that. Just sitting there with her was sales pitch enough for that institution. She was just, as a mom, she was counseling uh, him about how he should make his choice. So, so I'll miss Becky uh, terribly. Uh, our, our hearts go out to her family and to her friends, and uh, it's a great loss. Now, to end on a slightly happier note, I want to thank our producer and technical producer, uh, Dane Gambrell, whose 25th birthday is literally today. He is producing this program on his 25th birthday, a gift for all of us from him on his birthday. So thank you very much, Dane, uh, for doing that. Thanks to Ani Dinesh for his technical support, as always. And uh, Lexi Anderson, we meet, miss you. We'll get you back soon. Uh, so I want to thank our guests, Teresa Gilarducci, Elise Gould, Bill Spriggs. What a fantastic conversation. Uh, we're going to try and do this every month, everybody. So come back and see us. There's, go to the Power at Work blog and subscribe so that we can keep you updated about the great content that we're adding there every week, sometimes every day, trying to give you information about workers and worker power around the country. But most importantly, we'll see you back here on the blog very soon. Thanks for being here.